0: Well, if you have your Bible, uh, you can open them to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 12. And actually we'll read those in a minute. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you or um, share with your neighbor. Uh, They'd be happy to share with you. I'm sure of it. And so we're going to read those verses in, in just a second. But first let me just fill you in on where we're heading over the next couple weeks. Um, we are in the, the kind of the the beginning stages of a series uh, called the gospel-shaped life. And we've spent th- the first three weeks of this series just looking at some of the basics of the gospel. We we've been laying a foundation for what is the gospel. So that was the first sermon was what is the gospel, and we sought to answer that question. <clears throat> and then the following two weeks. We, we looked at two key aspects of the gospel message. Namely, that it is a message of great joy and that it is a message of sure hope. Okay, and so, so all those sermons, you can go back on our, on our website if, if you missed a week. Um, if you want to listen to them again, they are all posted on our website. You can go back and listen to them whenever you want. Um, but this morning, we're going to begin looking at how the gospel shapes our relationships and how the gospel shapes all of our relationships And Lord willing, for the month of July, we're going to focus on specific relationships that the gospel influences or shapes. And so this week is kind of an overview of how the gospel shapes or influences all of our relationships. And then we're going to look at how the gospel shapes a marriage, how the gospel shapes a family, how the gospel shapes church relationships, how the gospel shapes your relationship to society, to, to our nation as a whole. And so that's where we're going, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. But this morning, like I said, I just want to lay the foundation for all Christian relationships. And so as we begin, here is the main point. Here is the, the main idea of today's sermon. Uh, you can write it down or, or just, just internalize it and then write it down in your own words. It's kind of long. But the main point is simply this. As recipients of God's great love, Christians display that same type of love towards others. So as recipients of God's great love, which we're going to see was displayed in the gospel, as recipients of God's love for us as displayed in the gospel, Christians display that same type of love towards others. And it's all others. What Christians have received vertically, they distribute horizontally. The gospel is the foundation of all relationships because the gospel shapes how we view all relationships. Every single relationship that you are in right now I mean, think about it, whether it's a spouse or your children or your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your acquaintances, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your in-laws, whatever relationship you're in right now, every single one, if you're a Christian, is to be shaped by the gospel. It is to be a gospel-shaped relationship, which is to say that the way in which you move towards others, the way in which you relate to others that you're in a relationship with is motivated and compelled by the way that God has moved towards and related to you you get it? What we've received from God, we distribute towards others. That's the main idea. So let's read 1 John 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we will work through three points in the sermon. So so follow along. 1 John chapter 4, I'm just going to read verses 7 through 12. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in or among us. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we come, what, what a great encouragement we've already received from these words that we've sung together that Christ is our hope, that, that Christ is full of mercy, and that you have lavished your mercy on us. And, and it's just good for us, before we look at this passage, to acknowledge that, that God, you've given us two simple commands to love you and love others, and that we, that, that is a simple command. Two simple commands, we confess that we failed and continue to fail on both fronts. Even this morning, we have failed to love you and love others as we ought. And so as we look at this passage, Father, as we look at how we're to relate to others, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would make real to us our own weaknesses. Would you open our eyes to our own sinful hearts that we then may find hope in you, that we might be strong in you, that we might find rest in the forgiveness that comes from you. And so even as we begin, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we worship you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you gave freely of yourself that we might have life abundantly. We praise you, Father, that your great love caused or brought about the sending of your Son for us. And we praise you, Spirit, for the ongoing work that you have committed to do in our lives. Your presence in us is the guarantee of our inheritance The love of of this triune God has been poured into our very hearts through you, Holy Spirit. You are the one by whom we confidently cry, Abba Father. And so we worship you, Triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, and we ask that you would help us here now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there's there's three points three points. First point, relationships gone wrong. We're, we're going to look at the overview of, of the, the world we live in, how relationships function here and now. So relationships gone wrong. The second point, God, the gospel, and loving others. Th- this is where we're going to look at the, the verses we just read. And then finally, third is simply going to be, by way of application, gospel-shaped relationships. Going to seek, seek to encourage all of us to pursue gospel-shaped relationships. So so that's that's our outline, that's our roadmap. Let's begin there firstly with relationships gone wrong. Now if you don't know this, let let me start off by telling you that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that that is post-Genesis chapter 3. And in a post-Genesis chapter 3 world, sin affects everything. Every aspect of your life and my life has been affected by sin. From our new kitten scratching our youngest daughter... Something as menial as that, that's an effect of sin. Two, sickness or disease ravaging the body of someone you love. That's an effect of sin. Sin disrupted the created order and threw everything into chaos. Sin has affected everything. That's what I mean when I say we live in a fallen world. And what's particularly important for us to recognize here this morning is that one of the primary arenas that we see sin ravaging the human experience is the arena of human relationships, Your relationships and my relationships are affected by sin. And in fact, we could go as far as to say is that sin seeks to destroy and distort every single human relationship. I mean, you can see that in the fight that you had with your spouse this past week. You can see it in the jealousy rising within you as you read your friend's Facebook or or social media post. You can see it in the anger that spills over when, when you're talking with your child who just won't obey. Or or in the lust that that seeks to objectify that that person that you're you're gazing at. Sin is the primary cause and source of relationships gone wrong. It affects every relationship and it seeks to tear apart and distort and destroy. And so here at the outset of a sermon on gospel-shaped relationships, we just have to recognize that reality. And the main point, really the only point I want to make under this first heading is that we are the problem with our relationships. It's not his fault or her fault. It's your fault. You are the primary problem. And and I say we, when I say we, I refer to we as in fallen men and women, boys and girls who are naturally bent towards having our own way, insisting upon our own rights, preferring to live in a world where everyone and everything is set on serving and making much of me. That's our natural disposition. I mean, you're driving down the road and you're like, why are all these people on the road? As if they don't pay taxes just like you. This road deserves to be my freeway. Right? That that is a natural tendency. Everyone exists to serve me. That is human nature. That is fallen human nature. It's how we're wired. This is how Adam and Eve's relationship, the first relationship, was affected. Adam didn't want anything to do with Eve when the Lord came looking for them. It took him no time before he placed all the blame on his wife. It was her fault. He'd rather her be blamed and punished than him be implicated. He only cared about himself, and so he decided to put as much separation between him and Eve as possible. I mean, we see this in, in little children who lie and lie and lie. If there's even the slightest potential of trouble or consequence, I didn't do it. That's all they say, without even provoked or prompted. Or if there's a choice between considering themselves or their sibling, nine times out of ten, their choice is themselves. Now, hey, your brother wants that toy. Could you share it with him? No. Mine. My toy. Well, you need to share. No. If there's a choice between considering yourself or another, the natural bent is towards myself. I mean, try getting, to share a, try getting a five-year-old to share his ice cream cone with a sibling. It's not going to happen. In fact, grandparents, you do us parents a disservice when you quickly just buy ice cream for everyone. That doesn't help us teach a lesson. You don't, you're not forcing your grandkids to have to consider others. You're saying, hey, everyone gets what they want, right? That's not helpful as a parent. But my point is that because of sinful human nature, sinful human beings cannot rightly relate to others because we have sin that infects everything. And our our view of the world, our view of others is distorted by sin. In every human conflict, we are always our own best defense attorney. That's our nature. But even worse than the fact that human relationships have been distorted by sin, not only can we not relate to each other, not only our horizontal fellowship distorted by sin, but also our vertical fellowship, our relationship with God, the God who made us, is also broken by sin. So that we not only can't rightly relate to others, we can't rightly relate to God himself as a consequence of sin. And so as we look at the world, we were created as humans to relate to God and relate to others. We're created to know and love God, and we're created to know and love others. And these are why the greatest two commandments are love God and love your neighbor. This is why the Ten Commandments are broken up into two tables, love of God and and love of others. But sin has prevented both from happening as they ought. Instead, we love ourselves. In fact, listen to, to one 18th century writer explain. He writes, Sin has cut in pieces that divine love that knit man to God, And the dissolving of this has loosed that link of human society, love to our neighbor. And now all is rents, rags, and distractions, because self-love has usurped the throne. The unity of the world of mankind is dissolved. One is detached from another, each following their own private inclinations and inordinate affections, which is the poison of enmity and the seed of all discord. He continues, if the love of God and of one another had kept the throne, there had been a coordination and co-working of all men and all their actions for God's glory and the common good of man. Right, that's heaven, by the way. But now, self-love having enthroned itself, every man is for himself and strives by all means to make a concurrence of all things to his own interests and designs. While every man makes himself the sinner, it cannot be otherwise than that all the lines and draughts of men's courses must thwart and cross each other. That's a foundation that we have to understand before we look at our text in 1 John 4. We have to understand that because of the fall, because of sin in this world, there's something fundamentally wrong with us and with our relationships. Not only are you a sinner, incapable of loving God and others as you ought, as am I, but every single person that you're relating to is a sinner, incapable of loving God and loving others as they ought, which is why the only way for us to live in a right relationship with God and with others is for the sin issue to be addressed. The only way for us to live rightly as we were created before God and before others is for our sin to be dealt with. It's for us to encounter the love of God that's been displayed in the gospel, which is where we want to turn next. Second point, God, the gospel, and loving others. And this is what we see in 1 John 4. God, the gospel, and loving others. I want to look at these verses under the second heading. And the way I want to get to the meaning of these verses is simply to, to, to draw out the three main points, the main ideas that he focuses on in this small section. Because all three of these things are connected. And the logic of that we see of the Apostle John, much like we see the rest of this letter, and much like we see in his gospel, it's really simple to understand his logic. And the three points, they're the heading of this of this. The title of this heading, which is God, the Gospel and Loving Others. So I want to look at these verses to see what does John say about God, the Gospel, and loving others. Okay, so let's work through those. First, what does he say about God in these verses? First, look at verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now we're gonna skip right over the first command at the beginning of the verse. Right? The command is gonna be worked out later in, in verse in our third point. But the main thing that John is driving at. Why Christians ought to love others is is stated there in verse 7. The first thing we see is that love is from God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. God is the source, he says. God is the starting point. Love flows out of the spring of God's eternal being and nature. Love is from God, John says. The NIV translates it, let us love one another for love comes from God. That, that's his point. Love is, is sourced from, it, it comes from somewhere. It's not just this, this natural force in the world. No, it comes from someone. And in John's mind, there's a connection between those who know God and those who love others. Whoever loves, whoever expresses that god source volitional emotional action, John says that person has been born of God and knows God. Part of the bigger argument in the letter is that, that for some, someone to say that I know God, but then doesn't love others... John says that those people are self-deceived liars because loving others and knowing God are connected. They can't be separated. So John says to know God, to be born of God, it naturally follows that you love others. I mean, it's a natural connection in the same way that to be born naturally, physically in this world naturally leads to breathing. You're born and your life; your evidence of life is, is breathing. In fact, if you're born and you're not breathing, there's a problem. But more times than not, natural birth is followed by natural breathing. That's how God created us. So for someone to say that they're a Christian, that they know God, and yet they don't love others, is like someone to say that I'm physically alive, but I don't have to breathe. It doesn't work. As breath is to physical life, love is to Christian life. One doesn't create the other, but one validates or evidences the other. We ought to love one another, John says, because love is from God. There's a connection there. But second thing he says, look there at verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Second thing he says, because God is love. Again, his point is clear. If loving God is evidence of knowing him, then not loving is evidence of not knowing him. So he flips it and says the negative. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. Now a lot could be said under this point. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard that verse before. God is love. Now, I must limit what we say here. A lot could be said here, but but I just want to point out an error that's commonly conveyed in today's evangelical world is that John isn't making a definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. He's not attempting to give you a full-fledged, here is the nature and the full definition of God. God is love. That's not what John's doing. This, says A.W. Tozer, would be a great error to assume that this is, this is a full definition. De- definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. That's not John's point. John is stating a fact, not offering a definition. It's helpful to recognize this because it's common for people, Christian and non-Christian alike, to view the statement, God is love, as the only thing that's true about God. Or at least the most primary truth to be known about God. So some say, well, God is love. Well, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't judge. He wouldn't mind my sin. He's love. Well, well that is not all God is. If you say God is love and think, well, that means he's okay with sin, well, that, that is taking a definitive statement that was not intended as a definitive statement. It's not the complete truth about God as far as the Bible is concerned. And so, for someone to say the only thing you need to know about God is that he's love, that is just not true. In fact, John, same author, uses the exact same wording to say in his Gospel, chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, same words. And then, 1 John 1, chapter 5, same book, a few chapters earlier, he says God is light. Right? So these are three statements that John makes. God is spirit, God is light, God is love, and all are true. So it is true that God is love. It is also true that love is not all that God is. We just have to recognize that. God is all of his divine attributes fully at the same time. God is love, yes, but that doesn't mean that he isn't just or holy. I mean, We won't go into the depths here. I mean, I'd be happy to point you to some good resources or have a conversation with you about this but this is part of the, the, the classical theism, how Christians have talked about the nature of God from, for centuries. And, and the consensus is that God is simple. He's not consisting of parts. It's not like he's not a piece of pie that says well, he, he's part love and part holy and part just and part omniscient and part mercy and part faithful. He has all of his attributes all the time. He's simple. He's not composed of parts. If he's composed of parts, he wouldn't be God. And again, we're not going there But I'd be happy to, and and I I could recommend some good good sources. God is his attributes. His essence is his attributes, and his attributes is his essence. So yes, God is love, but that isn't all that he is, and it isn't even mainly who he is. But John's point here in verse 8, when he declares that God is love, is in order to make a similar point he made up in verse 7, namely that those who don't love don't have a relationship with God. Because God's very nature is that of love. So if you say you know God but don't love, you don't know God. That's his main idea. Knowing God shows itself in love for others. And that's the case precisely because of God's relationship to love. It's who He is. Notice thirdly, what, what is said about God there in verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest above among us that God sent His only Son into the world. So third thing it says about God in his nature in these verses is that God's love has been put on display. It's been manifested. So, so the love of God, this divine attribute, which is central to his divine nature, has been manifested. It's been put on display. And it's put on display, John says, by the sending of the Son into the world. John would say it this way in his gospel. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten Son. God's love doesn't sit passively by it. His love is, takes action. It moves. It's volitional. His love is manifested. Fourthly, finally, what, what John says about God here in these passages look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The point there is simply God's love is primary. It's not that we loved him and he said, oh, this is the kind of people that love me. I think I'll, I'll reciprocate my love for them. No, God loves first. It's primary. God's love is primary. Since love is from God, our love towards others will always be secondary. God's love is primary. It's first. It's a priority. God's love is primary. The God who is love definitively displays that love to the world by sending us his son, his son to atone for our sins. And, and so through the sinning of the son for our salvation, we see more clearly than ever how generous and self-giving the love of the triune God is. One author says, without the cross, we would never have imagined. We could never have imagined the depth and seriousness of what it means to say that God is love. God's love and the cross are inseparable, which leads to the second subject to observe from these verses, which is The gospel. So so what do we see about the gospel in these verses? I I don't have to say much here because we just saw it. But look at verse 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, through the son. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment or the propitiation for our sins. So God's love is made manifest among us through the act of sending his only begotten son. God's love for us is understood by his sending his son to be the payment for our sins. The coming of Christ is a concrete historical revelation of God's love. And so very practically speaking, if you ever doubt whether God really loves you, if you ever wonder if God could could actually love someone like you, if you ever question whether God is truly loving, look no further than that hill far away where there stood an old rugged cross. God's love is has been put on display. He can't take back the crucifixion of his son. He set forth his love for you. We can cling to and cherish that emblem of suffering and shame because of the love of God that led Christ to that cross. And so we cherish the cross because on the cross of Christ, the love of God was made manifest. God's love is seen most clearly not in 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 an easy life, in material possessions, in good relationships, in a, a trouble-free life, in disease-free living. None of those are evidences that are sure of God's love. The only sure evidence of God's love for you is the cross of Christ. And so God's love is seen most clearly and most fully in the gospel of the crucified Savior. And is the gospel of Christ and only the gospel of Christ that offers the solution to our relationships gone wrong. It's only the gospel of the crucified Christ, that my sins are covered, that my debt is paid, that my transgressions are conquered. It is only through faith in the crucified Christ that my relationship with God is restored. And so the gospel restores my vertical relationship with my creator, but also my horizontal relationship with my neighbor. And so as I come to God through faith in Christ, my relationship with God is restored. There's salvation nowhere else. In no other name, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that mediator is the only begotten Son who took on flesh and lived a perfect life. That only mediator is the one who willingly laid down his life in order to save those who were his enemies. God shows his love for us in this, while we were yet enemies, still enemies, Christ died for us. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can live. It is only through the death, his death on the cross in our place that we can be born again. It is only through the powerful message of the gospel that we can know God as we were created to know God. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian, I just want to to tell you, maybe I'm reminding you, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you never have. Let me proclaim to you that the gospel is good news indeed. Your only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, crucified and raised on your behalf. And God's love for you, no matter how great, would not be known apart from the coming of Christ. God has shown his love for you in the giving of his son. And so friend, Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has been raised. Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now is your time to look to Christ in faith. And be reconciled to the God who made you and to, to others who are looking to Christ. To be adopted into his family. Friends, there's hope nowhere else but in Christ. And so I would call you, look to Christ. I don't, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, how bad you are, how good you are. None of that matters. What matters is that you look to Christ in faith. And so I would, I would urge you to do that. In fact, I would call for you to do that, demanding you as though God is making his appeal through me. Trust in his son. Don't spurn the love of God that's been shown for you. Don't say, well, actually, I don't need that. I'd rather pass. You'll stand before him one day. He'll say, what did you do with my son? You'll say, well, I heard a sermon about that in, in Hampton, Virginia one time, but I thought, ah, no thanks. God's love has been shown for you in his son. Trust in him. Look to him. I'd love to talk with you about that. I I know many in this room would would be happy to, maybe a friend, maybe a parent. But John's, John's point here in this passage isn't just that God loves us and sent Jesus to die for us. That's true. But his main point, remember, has to do with us loving one another. And the display of God's love in the gospel is the foundation for our ability and command to love one another. So, so sin didn't just cause a rift in man's relationship with God, it also distorted man's relationship with one another. And just as the gospel is the remedy to our vertical relationship, our broken relationship with God, the gospel is also the remedy to our broken relationships with one another. Hugh Benning, I quoted him earlier. He's an 18th century Puritan. Listen to what he says. Now the Lord Jesus, having redeemed lost man and repaired his ruins, makes up the breach of sin... Especially restoring this fundamental ordinance of our creation and uniting men again to God and to one another. Therefore, Christ, He is our peace. He hath removed the seeds of discord between God and man and between man and man. This is the very substance of the gospel, a doctrine of God's love to man and of man's love due to God and to them who are begotten of God. The one declared, the other commanded. His point is that God's love for us manifested in the gospel is what compels us to love one another. What we've received vertically, we graciously bestow horizontally. Or as John Stott puts it, reciprocal love is the plain duty of Christians, which leads to our final point, gospel-shaped relationships. This, This is what we're called to. The gospel demands us to relate to others the way that God has related to us. And so I want to close just by doing these two things. First, I want to show you how pervasive this idea is throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's all over. If you think about this, how God has dealt with us, we deal with others. It's all over. I want to show you, I think, 11 passages. I'm just going to read through them. And they're they're going to be on the screen so you can write them down. But I want to just show you how it's pervasive. But then I want to just help us, myself included, to put this truth into action. So so let's look at how the New Testament talks about gospel-shaped relationships. So the first thing, first place is the the passage we just saw, 1 John 4.11. Where he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? So that's John's point. God's love for us compels us to love one another. Do you see how it's so reciprocal? Beloved, since God's loved us this way, we ought to love one another. Earlier in this same letter, 1 John 3.16. Not that 3.16, but a different. 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you you see the connection? This is an example. Christ laid down his life for us, and we are called to lay down our life for others. That's the pattern. John's Gospel, John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. How does he go on? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And in fact, by this, he says, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The people of God are created by the the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ. Therefore, they're known by love. That's his point. As I have loved you, you're to love one another. Ephesians 5. As as the Apostle Paul, in the the letter to the church at Ephesus, he's making these, these practical exhortations. There in verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love how as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Again, as Christ loved us, we are to love others. All of these passages assume a familiarity with the gospel and understand the acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. As Christ has, so you. There's a, a few passages that, that are, are focus on forgiveness. So Colossians 3, 13. Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved... Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Again, do you see, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive others. Ephesians 4, verse 32, same process. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, I'm I'm beating this drum. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Two other forgiveness passages, I don't think they're listed, but but Jesus has some, some pretty he draws a pretty stark line in, in the Lord's Prayer. He says at the end in Matthew 6, he says, for if you forgive others, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. And then there, there's the parable that, of the unforgiving servant says, if you don't forgive others, then the Lord's not going to forgive you. The, this is a, a stark line that Jesus draws in terms of if you're refusing to forgive others, you are evidencing or in danger of evidencing that you don't know what forgiveness is. His point is, the way God's dealt with you specifically with forgiveness, the debt that's been Forgiven you, you then are called to forgive others as a response, as a reciprocal. God's loved me, God's forgiven me, therefore I can deal gently with others. Two other passages, the next two, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, they're cultural context specific, but Paul's point is that what I eat and drink, if, if, it, if it affects my brother, then I need to not do it. So, so Romans 14, 15, he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. If you continue to do it and he's grieved by it, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so he's saying the way that you carry yourself ought to be in light of those that Christ died for. So you can eat in such a way to to grieve your brother and you ought not, not to do it because God died for them. Christ died for them. Same dynamic is at work in in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. But again, the point is that your action affects those for whom Christ died. The implication is that you love others and are concerned for them. The gospel shapes how you view others. A few more passages I'll, I'll mention here. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. Paul would say, "My entire life is controlled by this reality. Christ died for me. Therefore, be- because of the gospel message, the-, the fact that Christ died for me, I then with Him have been crucified, and I have new life, and I can live for others. And so the gospel transforms how I view others, or how I view my entire life." Galatians two twenty. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh, by f- not in flesh but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, the assumption is that the gospel, the, the coming of Christ, the giving of his life for us shapes how we live our lives. My point in going through all these passages is simply to show that the gospel transforms us and transforms our relationships. And so Christian We are called to view all of our relationships through the lens of the gospel. Every Christian is called to gospel-shaped relationships. And so in terms of application, it's as simple as gauging your relationship with others based on your relationship with God. I mean, J.I. Packer explains it this way. John wrote God is love in order to make an ethical point. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And listen to this question, these these pointed questions from J.I. Packer. He says, could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others anything at all about the greatness of God's love towards me? Could an observer learn from the quality and degree of the love that I show to others, my wife, my husband, my family, my neighbors, people at church, people at work? Could an observer learn from the way that I love them anything at all about the greatness of God's love towards me? question? And so I think in terms of application, in terms of homework for all of us, it would be worth walking through personally all of the relationships that God has given you right now in your life. Who are those that providentially your lives are are connected with, with individuals? Who are those that God has placed you in relationship with? Your spouse, children, parents, if you're a member of this church, you've been placed in a relationship of, or a church full of relationships. So, so God has placed you into relationship with church members, neighbors, co-workers, others, to walk through all of these and ask yourself, with those relationships in mind, those specific ones, what does the love that I show towards them say about the love of God that's been shown towards me? So, so how do I treat said person? When I'm at my worst, what am I conveying about the way God's dealt with me? Ask those questions. What does my love towards them say about God's love towards me? Because that's the issue. When we're lacking in love for others, we are failing to acknowledge God's love towards us. I, that, I think that's a simple of way to put it. And so if you feel like your love is lacking, which, which just to be honest, it is in every relationship in at least some way, and I'm included in that, And so when we we recognize that our love is lacking in light of our our need for for growth and change, we don't just double down and say, okay, I'm going to try harder. No, we go back to the source of our love for others, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go back to the source. And from the gospel, we meditate on things that are true of us. We learn what what is true about us, that God has been merciful to us. We know, as well as anyone else, the depths of sin in our heart. And we, we recognize that the truths of the gospel, that God know, knew me better than I know myself, and yet he still sent his son to save me. When I know that, when I know that amount of mercy and forbearance and patience, when I, when I know that, I can be patient with others. I can. God has been so patient with me. I am the worst of sinners with the apostle Paul. And yet God has shown me mercy. So when you know who you are, you're able to deal gently and patiently with others. The same Puritan, Hugh Binning. Listen to what he says. Whenever I find my spirit rising against the infirmities of others, which I think you can feel that. Feel like, I mean, you can feel it. Whenever I feel that, in my mind swelling over them, here's what he says. I repress myself with this thought. I myself also am only a man. Whenever I feel my spirit rising against the infirmities of others, whenever I want to lash out in anger and be frustrated or or lash out, I just remember, oh, I'm a man too. I'm a woman too. Realizing again and again and again the great debt that we were forgiven has a way of softening the heart of a Christian towards others. The parable of the unforgiving servant is a powerful display of what unforgiveness looks like, how ugly it is. Or the woman who, who busts into the, the Pharisee's party and anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And he says, oh, this woman, if you knew who she was, or actually thought, if you knew who this was, you wouldn't let her do that. And Jesus calls him, calls him forward and says, the one who's forgiven much loves much. These are powerful passages of Scripture that drive home the point that God's patience and gentleness and, per, and mercy and forbearance with us ought to, in fact, it must lead us to treat others accordingly. God is so kind, brother, sister. He's been patient with you. And he's gonna be until you're in glory, until, until you see his face. Therefore, we can be patient with others. That's my prayer personally, for me as a believer. but That's also my prayer for us as a church. Let, let's pray and then we will sing in response.